Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Nature's Archive podcast. You might notice that the introduction this week is a little bit different. That's because this episode is a special one that warrants a special introduction. Today, you're going to hear all about wasps with the award-winning author Heather Holm. But rather than me interviewing Heather, this is actually an episode from the podcast Backyard Ecology. Shannon Trimboli, the creator of Backyard Ecology, and I have become fans of each other's shows. We decided it'd be fun and hopefully valuable to you, our audiences, to share an episode of each other's podcast. I love the concept of Backyard Ecology and want to promote the importance of backyard habitats that I'm sure you've all picked up on. Shannon interviews authors and specialists on everything from fireflies to backyard vernal pools. Shannon is located in the eastern U.S., so her guests often focus a bit more on eastern ecology, which also complements my guests well, which are often focused on the western U.S. By the way, Shannon is also a beekeeper, author, public speaker, and the owner of a native plant nursery. You can check out her upcoming events and details on her public speaking on her website, which is shannontrimboli.com. As for this episode, as I mentioned, Shannon interviewed Heather Holm, who recently published the book, Wasps, Their Biology, Diversity, and Role as Beneficial Insects and Pollinators of Native Plants. Wasps get a bad rap in many circles, due primarily to a few aggressive species. However, it's actually a very small number of species that are aggressive, and in fact, there are actually many more species of wasps than there are bees, and the majority of them are solitary, tiny, and they have fascinating life histories. What I love about this episode is the deep dive into some of these fascinating life histories. You learn about how they hunt, how they create and provision their nests, and much more. If you enjoy this crossover episode, please consider subscribing to Backyard Ecology. Also, check out the show notes at podcast.naturesarchive.com for direct links over to Shannon's full show notes that include links to all of the references from this episode. So without further delay, a special crossover episode from Shannon in Backyard Ecology. Nature isn't just out there in some far-off exotic location. It's all around us, including right outside our doors. Hi, my name is Shannon Trimboli, and I am the host of Backyard Ecology. I invite you to join us as we ignite our curiosity and natural wonder, explore our yards and communities, and improve our local pollinator and wildlife habitat. Hi, everyone. Today we are talking with Heather Holm. Heather is a pollinator conservationist and award-winning author. Hi, Heather. Welcome to Backyard Ecology. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, Shannon. Thanks for having me. Let's start out by telling everyone just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm, uh, I live in Minnesota, so I uh, love you know, for the four distinct seasons of, of gardening and, and having a break for the winter. Uh, I spend most of my professional time either writing or publishing books. And like you, Shannon, being a pollinator educator and environmental educator, doing a lot of presentations. I also help with some research field work in the summer when I have time. Awesome. Yeah, getting out there and being involved is so much fun. Getting your hands dirty. I love that part of it too. But you've written several books. Most of them have been on pollinators, especially the bees, and then also on native plants. And I have to say, I have a couple of those books and I find them very valuable references. Thanks for writing them. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. I like making, drawing those connections, you know, between the the insects and the plants. So, Mm -hmm. And your next book, one that's just about to come out and actually will be out by the time this podcast airs in a couple of weeks, but it's on wasps, which I think is really interesting. And I've actually already ordered it. Can't wait to get it and start looking at it. And this is a topic that 10, 15 years ago, I would have been like, yeah, right. Like I'm going to get a book on wasps. Um, 
just not my thing. I, I never was really interested in wasps until, like I said, within the last several years, I've really started to pay more attention and become more fascinated with them. But I think before we go anywhere else with this, I have to ask the question that I am sure you've been asked a million and a half times, and you'll be asked another million and a half times. <laughs> and it's probably the one that's going through quite a few of our listeners' mind. Why wasps? <laughs> yep, you're right. Why wasps? And in fact, I addressed that very question in one of the first pages of the book <laughs> because I thought I started writing this book um, three and a half years ago and I thought I'm just going to push the envelope and write this book and whether or not the public's ready for it, I think eventually they will be. <laughs> but like you said, there's this growing fascination of the connection between providing this beautiful, viable habitat for pollinators and a purpose for gardening. And the second stage of that is more and more people are out in their gardens, immersed in them and looking for pollinators and maybe photographing them and learning more about them. And I think many folks, many of those more engaged folks have probably seen wasps visiting the flowering plants and wondered about them. And so this book is really tailored for the keen, the very keen people, I would, I guess I would say, <laughs> and those that don't know that they're keen yet, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, I've had family members ask me exactly that. Why in the world would you write a book about wasps? You know, it's the most hated insect, but hopefully today we can talk about how fascinating they are and why you should be interested in them. Yeah, and that's really the way I got started with them and interesting in them is because I was getting more interested in bees and I was paying more attention to the bees on the flowers and taking pictures of the bees on the flowers. And of course, the bees are all over the goldenrod in the fall. And so I had to wait into the goldenrod fields to take pictures of them because, well, how can you not? And of course, I'm like, hey, there's wasps, there's wasps, there's wasps. And then as I noticed that, well, the wasps were ignoring me as much as the bees were ignoring me. And then I started paying attention. Ooh, that one looks like a panda bear. And that one looks like a jack-o'-lantern. And ooh, that one has beautiful blue metallic wings and iridescent when the light catches them right. And suddenly I was as fascinated by the wasps as I was by the bees. Yep, that's the, that's the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I've gone down it pretty far, which is why I was so excited when I saw your book, because now I get to actually start to learn a little bit about them beyond what... I've kind of Googled and done internet searches on or the funny names that I've made up for them, like panda bear wasp and jacqueline or wasp that means something to me, but nobody else in the world is going to actually know what I'm talking about with that. Right. Yeah. And you you wrote that wonderful article on one of the mason wasps, the, the four-tooth mason wasp. Mm -hmm. And just to give people a sense that, like you said, they're they're not out to get you while they're at the flower restaurant similarly with bees. And unfortunately, there's a small minority of wasps that sting and will defend their nest, but that's not the case for most of them. And that's where a lot of, there's a lot of similarities between bee and wasp habitat and behaviors. Well, since we're talking about bees and wasps and their similarities, let's just start there. What are some of those similarities and how do they relate to each other? Sure. Well, bees are really hairy wasps, right? The wasps are the ancestors of bees. And bees at some point in time decided that they were going to be vegetarian and get all of their uh, nutrient sources from 
plant-based food, mainly pollen and nectar, right? Uh, wasps, uh, which many people may not be aware of, most adult wasps depend on flower nectar or a sugar, similar sugary substance such as honeydew or tree sap, but that's, that's their main food source as adults. So it's the big difference between bees and wasps is bees are collecting pollen and nectar to put in the nest to feed their larvae, whereas wasps are hunt very specific hunters and hunting one type of insect to cache in their nest for their larvae to feed on. So it's really a carnivorous versus vegetarian difference. But the similarities are, there are many, and and including ways in which both bees and wasps nest, most nest in the ground, only a small minority have social nests and, you know, more of a hierarchical nest uh, community, and and then a minority are nesting above ground. So we can kind of explore a couple of those situations. But if people listening are already familiar with what a a ground nesting bee does in order to produce the next generation of bees, the wasps are, have the same intention and uh, behaviors. Okay, cool. And yeah, I'm sure we'll explore some of those a little bit more in depth later on. But so how many, approximately how many species of wasps do we have here in the Eastern U.S.? Because most of our listeners are more Eastern U.S. than other places. You know what? I actually don't have an answer for that because <laughs> wasps, uh, many are undescribed. Uh, I think of particularly a lot of the parasitoid wasps, um, Mm -hmm. two large families, for example, the Braconid and Ichneumon wasps. They're very difficult to identify. Um, Many species are undescribed. So I don't know of a real sound number that I I can give you an answer, (laughs) but um, there are certainly many more wasp species than there are bee species in, in the eastern U.S. So bees are sort of this very small piece of the pie of the, you know, singing hymenopteras. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I knew there were more wasps than bees. I didn't realize there was that many more wasps than bees. Yeah. And they can be, especially when we add in those little parasitoids, they can be teeny tiny, almost microscopic, can't they? Very, very tiny. And I went through a lot of uh, iterations of lists of what species to cover in the book. Just and I came to the conclusion that the parasitoids were would be so difficult. And I know people listening may be disappointed, but like you said, Shannon, some are super small and very difficult to identify. So I stuck with what would be the wasp that would be the common species people would see visiting flowering plants. And, and that was where the, the list really got distilled down to. So it, it, the book will be focusing on the larger wasps that are more, char- maybe I can call them charismatic <laughs> and noticeable uh, in our gardens and landscapes and nature areas while we're out uh, on a hike, for example. Yeah. And that makes sense too, because it's going to be those charismatic wasps, those interesting wasps that we encounter just accidentally as we're out and about or looking at the flowers and admiring the bees and the butterflies and 
then maybe happen to start getting interested in those wasps like I did. Yep. Then we can go down the rabbit hole of the parasitoids. That's right. That's right. Many, many of the parasitoids, you know, hosts are unknown. So there's, the biology is, a lot of it is lacking. And, and that's what I found even trying to scour up some, you know, natural history information for some of the species I profiled in the book. I, I was going back a century or more, um, just trying to find some tidbits so people understood how this wasp may nest or what it may hunt. And so they've been, for the most part, largely ignored other than a few scientists that are wasp uh, experts. Yeah, that, that seems to be the story with many of our invertebrates and our insects, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I think part of that comes from funding and all those other things. Yes, exactly. So let's just kind of focus, like you said, with the book, those more charismatic ones, the ones that people are going to be more likely more likely to see and encounter. Can you tell us some stuff about their general lifestyle cycles? Or we were saying they eat different insects. Is that grouped by like every species has a different one or different genera, different families? How does that work? Yeah, that was sort of the amazing thing. I knew that there was some prey specificity for a particular wasp species, but I didn't realize the extent of it until I started researching this book. And many people listening will be aware that many of our native bees, for example, are pollen specialists. So they, you know, collect pollen from a narrow range of plants. And similarly, the the solitary predatory wasps, uh, many of them have very specific insect prey. So the eastern cicada killer only hunts cicadas. That's an easy example. Mm -hmm. And then beetle wasps uh, in the genus Cerceris, even individual species will have a different subset of types of beetles that they will hunt. Uh, we have a wasp that hu only hunts queen ants. Oh, wow. So queen ants leave their nest wing to fly out on their nuptial uh, mating flight, and then they, they lose their wings shortly thereafter. And this wasp only captures queen ants, not males, trying to mate with the queen. And the second sort of requirement that this wasp seems to have is the queen ant still has to have her wings for the wasp to be interested in capturing her. So that was going to be my next question. Yeah, some pretty, pretty specific uh, things that uh, some wasps are, are looking for. And so all of that prey specificity uh, on the ground can result in some interesting things, such as many different wasp species nesting in close proximity, if they're all ground nesting, for example, because they don't have competition uh, for their food source. They're each hunting their own insect in the landscape. So that, that to me is pretty fascinating. That is fascinating, especially when you're thinking about things becoming that specific as a queen ant with her wings on. Right, right. <laughs> and <Wow>. then <laughs> interestingly enough, the, wa the female um, queen ant kidnapper wasp, she's called, she will remove the wings once she captures the queen. <laughs> so <laughs> so why, it, why she needs to be winged at, at capture, who knows? Yeah. And I would take it with something like that, that it, and this may be one of those we don't know questions. Um, would the wasp be going after her on her nuptial flights and catching her in air? Or is it something that's taking place after she lands or? Yeah, generally, most of the observations uh, state that the this wasp will capture the queen once after she is mated and once she, she'll land on the ground shortly thereafter. And that's usually when they, they get captured by the wasp. Interesting there. <laughs> 
I could go on down, down this rabbit hole, but we'll, we'll keep going because, yeah, my mind's just gotten curious now. Um, but okay. And then you've also got spider eaters too, don't you? Yep, a number of spider eaters. There's a family of wasps called spider wasps, and they, they're they sort of unusual. Many of them, well, most, most uh, nest building wasps will prepare a nest prior to hunting for prey. Uh, similarly with bees, right? Bees will excavate a nest and prepare a cell. But spider, many of the spider wasps will hunt their prey first, and, and that would be spiders, of course. And usually they drag the prey after they've stung it to paralyze it a short distance across the ground. And then they're at the same time, they're simultaneously searching for a, night, a good place to dig a shallow burrow to put the spider in. So they're kind of unusual, and, but they can be prevalent flower visitors, but they're so diverse. For example, there's more than 300 species of spider wasps in Florida alone. So, oh, wow. so for the book, I tried to just feature many that were easier to identify and, and more commonly seen on flowers, but certainly couldn't get into the diversity of spider wasps. And then there's other, in, uh, other wasps in entirely different families that also hunt spiders. And uh, many of those are nesting above ground and building mud structures. Yeah, one, um, a couple of years ago, I was outside and I saw this wasp. It was dragging a wolf spider. I mean, the spider was bigger than the wasp and it dragged it across the driveway or across part of the concrete driveway. And then we've got a, a metal sided garage and it went up inside of the garage where the, in the corner where the aluminum overlaps. And I was like, that's just cool. Yep. Yep. You've hit on something that's I talk a lot about in the book is, you know, the, the size of the prey is really going to dictate whether a wasp is, will need to necessarily have to drag it across the ground because it's too heavy. But some of the more evolved wasps are hunting prey that are often smaller than them. And so they'll clutch them underneath them or in their mandibles and fly them back to their nests. So there's all these different ways that wasps have developed and how they how they carry prey, carry dra or drag prey for that matter. Yeah, and I guess it's probably the ones that have got the bigger prey items that we probably pay more attention to, notice more when they've got the prey because the only wasps that I can remember seeing with prey are a cicada killer, which was amazing to see this thing take a cicada out and try and half fly, half drag. It couldn't really decide what it wanted to do with it. And then also then that one that had the wolf spider with it. Right. Yeah. The cicadas are sort of unusual, the cicada killers, because uh, there are studies that have demonstrated sometimes the prey can be two to three times as heavy as the, the female wasp. And just like you said, you know, she may let launch from the tree where she's captured the cicada, but at some point in time is doing a lot of resting on the ground with the cat with the prey clutch beneath her and either trying to fly again or will end up having to drag the prey across the ground. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that gets into if you do have a nest prepared, that means it's a lot of work and energy expenditure just to find the prey close to the nest and then get it back to the nest to put the prey inside. So yeah, I guess making your nest afterwards does make sense in some ways. It does. It does from, um, you know, saving time and energy. Mm -hmm. But then the prey is left exposed to natural enemies while you're bu <laughs> busy excavating a nest, right? Right. So that kind of brought up a question in my mind. I just thought of, I know with native bees, every egg gets its own little ball of pollen. And then they kind of usually like will build partitions or whatever between each one. So like 
the way I sometimes say it when I'm giving talks is everybody gets their own individual bedroom to grow up in. Right. But with these big spiders and the cicadas and stuff, are multiple wasp eggs laid on it at the same time? So everybody just has this like communal food source? Or is she getting one cicada or one wolf spider for every single egg that she lays? Yeah, so for the spider wasp that captures the spider, like the one you observed, that's a pretty um, sizable prey or food source. So in that situation, she would dig her little shallow burrow in the ground, put the spider in there, and then lay one egg on it, and then close it up and never return. So that that one spider becomes the food source for the wasp larva. Sometimes uh, the cicada killer, they will maybe cache one cicada, but in some cases, they'll they'll put two and even three cicadas. And so that the female wasp, just like a female bee, will decide how much food provisions to put in a particular cell. And often mm-hmm. more prey, if the prey are smaller, you know, there'll be numerous, but more of them will be provided for an egg that's destined to be a female offspring than an egg that would be destined to be male offspring. So in other words, males don't get as much food for development than, than females like bees. Mm -hmm. So if I'm understanding correctly, it's still one egg per whatever amount they put in that section of the nest. Yeah, exactly. So if it's a below ground nest with multiple cells, each cell will have one to several prey, but one single egg laid in that cell or room, as you called it. Um, Now, there is one sort of exception to that. There's a grass carrying wasp that some observations have revealed that they don't partition the above ground cavity. So they just put a whole bunch of prey in there and lay some random eggs and the larva consume the prey in one big room. And amazingly, um, there isn't any larval cannibalism that goes on. (laughs) They seem to be able to differentiate between what prey they're supposed to be eating versus their siblings. But that's pretty unusual. So Yes, uh, everybody gets their own room with their food <laughs> to, to grow on. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's one way to keep you from eating your siblings, though, like you brought up. I mean, yeah, that could that could happen, I would imagine. Uh, I mean, it still could. It just probably hasn't been discovered or observed. Right. Interesting. And like you said, the partitions, you know, bees use a number of natural materials to partition, particularly their above ground nests and cavities and wasps do as well. Some, the grass carrying wasps typically will clip pieces of grass blades and coil those and use those as sort of the division, like a bee would with mud or pith or uh, resin, for example. Others will use uh, wood fibers or or moss if they're wood nesting. So there's a lot of those are a number of similarities to those natural material partitions used in, in above ground cavities. Okay. We keep talking about the cavities and the nesting places. What are some of the places that our wasps nest? Well, amazingly, they nest in um, very similar places to bees. Um, So above ground wasps will be looking for typically for pre-existing cavities, and that can include holes in wood, so a standing dead tree. Others prefer maybe a log lying on the ground where the wood is a little bit softer, so further excavation that, you know, they can enlarge the cavity. Some wasps will nest in pithy stems, whether they're perennial flower stalks or uh, softwood shrubs, elderberry, sumac, for example. 
there's a broken end or a pruned end, they, they will nest in that type of cavity as well. And then we have above ground nesting wasps that basically create their own cavity. Usually mud is the mason or the structure that they use. They collect it and, and then form their own mud cylinders or mud structure, mud jug-shaped nests in some cases. And that becomes the individual nest and they in some cases, they are partitioned if they're along sort of cylindrical mud structure. Okay. You've kind of referred to above ground nesting wasps. I'm assuming there's also below ground nesting wasps. Do we have any idea of what kind of the proportion is? Because I know like with our native bees, most of our native bees are ground nesters and only a small percent are above ground nesters. Is that similar in wasps? Yeah, it's pretty similar breakup. Again, I don't have a handle on total wasp species and, um, you know, nesting behavior, but certainly the species I profile in the book, the breakup is similar to bees. And we're talking about the ones that actually construct nests, right? (laughs) Right. Because there's the parasitoids as well. And the large majority of wasps that nest above ground belong to the subfamily that are the potter and mason wasps. And they are the ones that either collect mud to make those mud structures or mud to partition their nests, which is why they have the name mason, right? Right, exactly. I was going to say some of those are absolutely amazing. I mean, every year we get a lot of the the Oregon pipe wasps nests. I never really see the wasps that much. I mean, I do occasionally, but the nests just kind of appear on our porch. And I love it every year because in the wintertime, then the downy woodpeckers and the Carolina wrens come and they take them all out or most. <laughs> yep. The, the circle of life, right? <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. I call them my natural bird feeders. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. They, you know, you've got a lot of food sources lined up in each of those little rooms, right? In the, in that nest. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally I'll find the potter jug ones and oh my gosh, I've done pottery before and just haven't had time to do it lately, but I was always really interested in pottery and I loved making miniatures and I find those jugs and I'm like, this is gorgeous. I mean, I wish I could make one like that sometimes. Oh, it absolutely is. And with that, you know, it's it's truly this sort of ornate jug, you know, large sort of cylinder and then a flared lip and small opening that they create and all for just one one baby, one larva. Right. So they have mm-hmm. to repeat that mud construction over and over again in order to produce more than one offspring. Yeah. Well, how many do they typically produce? How many offspring? Um, it probably is dependent on, um, you know, nest building sources, prey. So the, mm-hmm. the, the potter wasps, the eumenes that we're talking about that make those beautiful jug-shaped nests, they, they hunt caterpillars. So if, as long as there's adequate prey for them to stuff a number of caterpillars into the jug <laughs> and lay a single egg, then they will maybe build a number of, uh, one female may, you know, build you know, 5, 10, 15 nests in her lifetime. Generally, those Potter and Mason wasps are producing multiple generations per year. So the the first generation or the first eggs laid in the spring, they would grow up and emerge as adults and then also start building the same nests midsummer and so on. So uh, there's sort of a cyclical time frame of when you see them because of the multiple generations produced mm-hmm. for that particular species. Okay. And those mason wasps that are making the potter jugs, they must be hunting very early and start very young caterpillars because 
I can't see like some of the bigger caterpillars that I find being stuffed into something like that. So are they really just targeting the little ones or do they really break it down? How does that work? They, they generally hunt mostly moth caterpillars, smaller okay. ones, you know, in, um, you know, what some folks call inchworms. So if you can picture a size of that caterpillar, uh, because again, they're, they're all flying back to the nest with the prey. So it's not going to be a giant tomato hornworm or <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Although we do have some thread-wasted wasps that hunt those larger caterpillars, but they straddle them and then drag them across the ground once they've captured them. Okay. I never really looked it up and I just got, guess I kind of assumed that the potter wasps, because the jugs are so small, were doing something other than caterpillars. Yep. No, uh, most of the, or mo- almost all of the potter and mason wasps hunt, hunt caterpillars and generally moss versus butterfly caterpillars. <laughs> For the butterfly aficionados, yes, <laughs> not to worry, <laughs> but there are a few that hunt beetle larvae, for example, and they're they're sort of the unusual mason wasps. So you've mentioned beetles and we've talked about caterpillar hunters and of course the cicadas, but they're beetles. What are some of the other types of insects? Well, um, the bee folks won't be happy to hear this, but there are wasps called bee wolves. And and if you haven't guessed already, they, they hunt bees. <laughs> Generally, they're not super big wasps, so they tend to hunt bees in the Helictidae family, the sweat bee family, and they're prevalent at flowers because the adults are feeding on nectar, but they're also looking for their <laughs> their prey source, who are also flower visitors. So, yep, bees bees are hunted by wasps, but a small a small group. We have sand wasps that hunt leaf hoppers and tree hoppers and insects in the bug family. Yeah, there's. There's a huge variety of prey, and with prey specificity, almost everything in in the book is covered by a a particular wasp. That is really cool. And I always say, at least in my gardens, I'd rather have the predators and the prey have a good functioning ecosystem, and it all works out, and there's enough around there for everybody. Absolutely. And most of the time, the, you know, the wasps are providing that ecosystem service because, because of that prey specificity, they really do kind of help keep all insect populations in balance, right? Mm-hmm. If, if they all hunted one thing, then we'd have, we'd have this out of balance population of other insects that didn't have predators. So yeah, that's a good message that I'm sure you trying to convey when you're speaking is, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's about diversity. And when you don't have diversity, you tend to have imbalance. And if everything in, is in, in the world order and, <laughs> and balanced, then it's okay to welcome all of these predator-prey relationships in our gardens. And they're fun to watch. I'm sorry. I think that's cool. They are fun to watch. It's, there's a lot of sort of subtle cloak and dagger going on too, because not all the wasps are building nests, right? Mm-hmm. They may want to sneak in another wasp nest to lay their eggs. So just like we have cuckoo bees, we also have different types of cuckoo wasps that prey on specific wasps. You've got cuckoo wasps. Are they actually just like laying their eggs in those nesting sites? Or are they actually going out and grabbing wasps? And that's what they're leaving in their nests for the larvae. No, they're, for the most part, many are kleptoparasitic or they're 
parasitic. So some will uh, sneak into a nest, lay their egg in a prepared cell with either the prey there or the cells in the process of being provisioned. And that cuckoo wasp larva may eat the prey provided, or it may wait and ignore the prey and wait until the wasp larva is ready to pupate and then consume the wasp larva. So there's two different scenarios depending on what kind of, uh, whether it's a kleptoparasite or or true parasitoid. So one of the common families of cuckoo wasps are those, uh, they're all generally emerald green or sometimes bluish wasps. And they look very similar to some of the bees in the sweat bee family, bright emerald, brilliant green. And you'll see them sort of sneaking around, crawling on perhaps a supplemental nest, a cavity nest. You'll see them investigating the cavities, going inside, coming back out, or perched monitoring a nest that a wasp is actually or actively um, building. So they're always looking for their <laughs> their prime opportunity to sneak in while the host is away, just similarly to cuckoo bees. And you find those on flowers too? Yeah, you do find them on flowers. So they, they need to take some time out to get their nourishment. And uh, many, not all, but many of the cuckoo wasps will uh, visit flowers and, and feed on nectar. So Okay. This may seem like a very basic question, but you were saying they're emerald green and metallic and the metallic blues and stuff and look a lot like the sweat bees. So how do you tell the difference between the sweat bees, those metallic sweat bees, and some of these metallic cuckoo wasps? Well, the metallic cuckoo wasps that I am, that family I'm speaking of, they are unusual. They have fewer visible abdominal segments, so they tend to be more broader and shorter looking. And then, of course, our bees generally are going to have be more hairy than a wasp, have more pollen collecting structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing with many cuckoo wasps and cuckoo bees is their exoskeleton is pitted, so it looks kind of like uh, sometimes I call it golf ball. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and it's sort of a way that they can defend themselves from attacks from the host. If the host is trying to sting them, that pitted ex- exoskeleton can help. So the cuckoo wasps tend to have a strongly pitted exoskeleton, and then they just look more scrunched up and, mm-hmm. and shorter. And one of their other defense mechanisms is when they're attacked, they will uh, their abdomens are rather concave, so they'll roll up in a ball if the host is inside the nest when they go in and attempts to sting them. They'll they'll roll up in a ball to avoid getting hurt. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I mean, sweat bees aren't exactly the hairiest of bees. That's why I was asking about that. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, they have sort of more subtle scope on their hind legs and mm-hmm. uh, some can be relatively hairless. Yeah. But generally, I would just say like, like sort of longevity and versus uh, robustness is a big difference. <laughs> but as you know, you, you have to you have to observe a lot to start to see these and parse out these different flower visiting insects and understand what they are. Right. Yeah. And we were just mentioning the hairiness of the bees. And the hairiness of the bees is what makes them such excellent pollinators because the bees are flying along. They basically build up a static electric charge on them. So when they land on the flower, the pollen all just jumps onto them basically. So they get very covered in the pollen and then it can get brushed off. So that hairiness really helps with bees being good pollinators. Wasps aren't hairy, but I've heard them occasionally referred to as pollinators. So how does that work? 
Well, they, you know, any insect that visits a flower has the potential to pollinate. Um, like you said, bees get the gold star or the first place <laughs> ribbon <laughs> for for their um, efficiency and effectiveness as pollinators because the females are purposefully collecting pollen and packing it and moving it. And so that makes them this excellent vector of pollen transfer. And like you said, wasps generally are a lot less hairy than bees. So the their ability to collect pollen grains and move those from flower to flower to result in pollination is less likely. But what wasps do have some uh, flower fidelity, they do have a sort of a narrower suite of flowering plants that they prefer to visit. They do move around from flower to flower more so than a beetle would or perhaps a fly. Mm -hmm. So they have the potential of being fairly good vectors of pollen if they're not, you know, grooming that pollen off <laughs> before they get to the next flower. So, and as you know, um, pollination science is very, very detailed and specific. And so to really demonstrate a particular insect is a pollinator can be difficult and <laughs> time consuming. <laughs> but I wouldn't discount wasps as pollinators. They do have the potential because of the number of adults that rely on flower nectar and less often on pollen as, as their adult food source. Okay. And that makes sense. Yeah. Because with pollination, ecology and biology, I mean, we're learning so much. We're constantly learning so much. And there's so many different ways for the pollination to occur. I mean, some of the butterflies, it's the wingtips and the length of the wingtips and they'll brush through and pollinate flowers. And it doesn't have anything to do with the pollen getting on the body at all. Right. So yeah, I could see that being true with wasps. Right. And one example where wasps, uh, some wasp species have demonstrated that they're good at pollinating our milkweeds because, you know, milkweed has that unusual pollen transfer and mm -hmm. pollen packaging of sticky sacs. And because some of the wasps are larger, they don't get ensnared in a milkweed flower. So they're fairly good at transferring those pollinia to other milkweed plants. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of So it's, you know, it's not just hairiness, <laughs> as you said, it's foraging behavior and strength and tongue length and, you know, all those other things that play into whether an insect actually pollinates a flower. Right. Yeah, I've seen other research about other insects where it's like the eyeballs are what's transferring the pollen. So it's amazing, but that's a totally different topic on the pollination <laughs> ecology and different rabbit hole we could go down. But yeah, I mean, with some of those big wasps, I could see how they could easily be transferring the milkweed pollinia there because they are so much bigger and so much more robust than our bees. Because honeybees are kind of right on that edge of whether they, they can do it or not. Yep, they are. I have pictures of honeybees successfully carrying pollinia on their leg without being stuck on the flower. And I have photos of them stuck on the flower, <laughs> just completely ensnared. Thread, the, some of the thread-waisted wasps, I have many images of the pollinia on, on their legs, and that's one study demonstrated that they are fairly good pollinators of some milkweeds. So. Mm -hmm. so I know like with some of our native bees, they're only active as an adult for a very specific time frame, especially the one, some of the ones that are more pollen specialists with a narrow range on there. What about wasps? I mean, we've talked about some that have multiple generations, so I would assume they're pretty much active most of the summer, most of the growing period. But are there any that are just like that and have that very specific, maybe a couple of weeks, three, four weeks during 
one period of the year and then that's it for their active period and only one generation? Yeah, yep. There's there's a sort of a mix uh, like bees, but uh, one example would be the the sand wasps. They generally produce one generation per year. They come out at like a bee if you're monitoring a solitary ground nesting bee and it has, you know its phenology. Some of the sand wasps, for example, I, I I would call them summer wasps. They come out at the same time in the warmer months, July and August, where I live in the northern part of the U.S. They produce one generation per year, and then their uh, larvae develop below ground for the next 11 months, and then, the, you know, the next generation comes out. So, And you, that's exactly something folks could look for if they know of a specific nesting site, often like bees, if it's an ideal soil type for these sand wasps, some of them like just absolutely loose sand, not just, not firm compacted sand, but loose sand. And so you'll have multiple generations building nests year after year in that same or similar place, and unless it's disturbed. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yes. And I'm assuming with a name like sand wasp, they have to have sandy soils. So like where I'm at, where we're mostly clay soils, we probably don't have very many of them, I would guess. Is that correct? Uh, could be. I'm sure... Um... Yeah, if you're in, you know, the big clay area along the eastern <laughs> seaboard, <laughs> yes, there'd be fewer sand wasps, but they're, you know, they're going to be more prevalent along coastal areas, ancient sand dunes, any kind of sandy habitat. You'll find a lot of wasp diversity in, in sandier soils, but that's not to say you wouldn't have a number of ground nesting wasps in, in, in a heavier soil, but it just takes a lot more work like, you know, with bees to get your nest burrow excavated in, in that type of soil. Right. And with the bees, I mean, I, I know with the ground nesting native bees, a lot of times you'll have like a tube that goes down and then you kind of have the branches off. Do the ground nesting wasps do the same thing or do they just have like one branch and that's it? Or is, do we know? Yep, there's different nest architectures. They some of them resemble bees, you know, having multiple cells. Generally, they'll have a main burrow, and then if they are multicellular, they'll have those sort of side channels branching off and individual cells. Many wasps, like the sand wasps I just mentioned, generally will just excavate one nest, or excuse me, one one or unicellular nest, so one short burrow with an, uh, an enlargement at the end. But then they'll excavate many of those in the, the female's lifetime. So mm -hmm. uh, it really depends on the wasp. Some of the bee wolves, the ones that hunt bees that I mentioned earlier, they will dig uh, accessory burrows. So they'll dig this shallow, short burrow next to the main actual burrow. And it's to distract natural enemies um, while they're away hunting for prey, hopefully, hoping that the natural enemy will investigate and go in the accessory burrow rather than the real nest. And kind of going back to our bee analogy, because I'm guessing more people are familiar with native bees than they are with native wasps. I know some of the native bees, even though they're solitary native bees, there's a few that where you might have one entrance, but then everybody has multiple individual burrows going off and tunnels going off of that. Do we see wasps, do, some of our wasps doing the same thing, or is it always just one female per one entrance? Generally, this, a solitary nest is more common. There has been, uh, so you're talking about communal nests. There is a one type of bee wolf featured in my book that they have found nesting communally. So like you said, the, the females are sharing a, 
a nest burrow, but um, provisioning their own cells with, with low ground. But that's not very common with wasps. They either are solitary, social, <laughs> and not too many things in between. Some some of the sand wasps are considered sort of semi-social because they have an extended period of interaction with the larva. So they don't, they prepare a nest and not unlike most wasps who prepare a nest, fill it up with prey and lay an egg and close it up, close mm -hmm. up the cell, they progressively provision the nest. Mm -hmm. So they'll put one, one insect prey in there, lay an egg, and then the female will come back over the following weeks, days, check on the food supply and bring more prey as needed. So she's got this extended time that she's interacting with her larva, which is pretty unusual for a solitary hymenoptera. Yeah, I hadn't really even thought about that being an option. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, usually it's uh, close it up and you're on your own, right? <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Good luck to you. Good luck. I gave you food. It's up to you now. Yep. Good parental care until you just leave them be. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Do you have any favorite wasp stories? I do. Uh, or what is your favorite wasp? <laughs> well, I, the other similarity I think is really fascinating is some the thread-waisted wasps in particular, they uh, use a similar mechanism that bees use to buzz pollinate flowers. So they, they sonicate usually clasping their mandibles on soil if they're trying to excavate their nest burrow. Okay. And that sonication is almost sort of like a jackhammer-like mechanism that shakes the soil and loosens it in order for them to excavate their burrow. So to me, that's really fascinating. And it's loud. If you find a thread-waisted wasp digging her burrow, you can hear her actually, you know, buzzing, mm -hmm. buzzing the soil in, inside. Wow. Some of the mason wasps, the black and yellow mud dauber, it's uh, one that creates these freeform mud cylinders above ground. And the females will search for moist uh, mud near creeks or water bodies, and that's where they collect it. And they also use the sonication mechanism to sort of gather up the clumps of mud in their mandibles. And then when re they return to the nest, if you can picture a, a mud cylinder that they keep adding layers to that leading edge of the cylinder. And as they're depositing that clump of mud, they, they also sonicate in order to shake the mud and to get it to settle into place. A study found that they use two different frequencies. So, you know, a higher and a lower frequency for those two tasks, which to me is pretty amazing. That is amazing. Yep. That's really amazing. And do we know, is that a behavior, the sonication method, is that a behavior that evolves separately in the bee, in the evolved in the bees and our wasps and then later evolved in the bees for buzz pollination or is it related? Do we know any of that? Cause that's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, that I haven't been able to find an answer. I have <laughs> tried to find out, but the, these thread wasted wasps the, in the Sphecidae family are really some of the true ancestors of bees. So it's possible that this mechanism and uh, carried over to bees and, you know, was started to get used for pollen extraction instead of, mm -hmm. um, you know, excavation or other ways that they use, wasps use the sonication. Okay. But yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to know the answer. <laughs> there really aren't that many um, studies, studies about that specific 
sonication by wasps. I found one acoustic study in a music journal, <laughs> um, but not a lot of people have really researched about it uh, other than uh, some of the old books and texts that are over a hundred years old. People, you know, in their Victorian language eloquently talked about wasp buzzing and, and doing that sonication. But yeah, there, there's very few studies that um, talk more about it in in the last 30 years. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe I'm hopefully some graduate student will be inspired to look more into it. Yeah, that would be fascinating to learn more about because I mean, it could, it could easily go either way. And it is just one of those things when you start talking about sonication and it's just like, okay, wait, really? <laughs> yep, exactly. Is there a link between them? Right, because you know bees use that similar mechanism, shivering to to warm up, right? But mm -hmm. um, I don't know of wasps using that to to warm warm themselves is more for you know nest building purposes. Right. So if we're looking at wasps and trying to identify some of them, and, and this is just out in the field, we see it on a flower. What is that? Um, not bringing it in the lab, look at it under a microscope thing. But I'm assuming like native bees. Getting it down to species can be difficult oftentimes, but what are some of the things that we really need to be looking at? What are those key characteristics that would help us identify them as well as they can be identified out in the field? Yeah, it's it's a complex question, as you know, just like bees, right? Mm -hmm. Many of the wasps that I featured in the book can be identified to species with specific coloration patterns and characteristics. So it really is family and species dependent sometimes of what you <laughs> what you want to mm -hmm. specifically look for while you're out observing. Generally shape and shape and size can be a good starting point. It's sometimes as you know difficult for a beginner to parse out some differences, but if you find find them in a nesting situation that helps narrow it down fairly quickly find them capturing prey that that also is a very good <laughs> clue the for example the potter and mason wasps are generally mostly black with either yellow or white markings and they can be difficult to tell apart but once you know what to look for you know markings on the thorax and abdomen you can start to begin to to parse them out i would definitely suggest to folks to take pictures and practice taking pictures from different angles, especially if you want to really find out what it, what it was that you observed. As many as pictures as you can take will, will be helpful for an expert helping you out, for example, on iNaturalist or Bug Guide. <laughs> One picture often isn't enough. <laughs> what are the angles that you want to be sure you get? I mean, if you're not sure how long the wasp is going to stick around on the flower, um, which are the ones that you want to make sure you can get first? Yeah, I definitely sort of a top-down view. So, you know, getting the markings on the top of the abdomen and thorax and, and head. And then a, a side view is always very helpful. A shot of the face direct, directly onto the face can be helpful for in many cases. And it's just really practicing photography, <laughs> trying to get <laughs> trying to get it the the moving insect in focus is can be a challenge. And mm -hmm. just practice as much as you can. I also suggest to folks if they are into pollinator photography, even if you have a very basic camera, turn your flash on because that can help illuminate the insect while you photograph it and slow down, get better depth of field and and reveal more more of the identification characteristics that than you would without a flash. Okay. 
Interesting. Because I'm always trying to do without the flash because everybody's always like, oh no, don't use flash. Don't use flash. And sometimes I get funny shadows and stuff and glares. And so I'm like, yeah, that's why I don't use flash. But interesting. Okay. I'll have to try some with the flash on now. Yeah. I mean, those beautiful shiny emerald green and you know insects that we talked about will get a bright white spot from the flash but if you're really trying to get a better look at characteristics the flash can help help illuminate those okay that's that's very good to know because i do want to start trying to figure out more of what they are i mean i've started looking up some like you mentioned i've talked a little bit about the four tooth mason wasp and some of the other stuff i've done but yeah i want to start learning some of these others so i need to know how to do it myself Yeah, the four-toothed mason wasp has two very close lookalikes in the same subfamily. (laughs) So there's Mm -hmm. one um, that the difference is the one wasp has two white spots behind the compound eye and the other doesn't. (laughs) So so that's a situation where you need a a photo sort of of the back of the head in order to capture those white spots or a side profile. The other lookalike will have two white fascia or abdominal bands, whereas the, the four-tooth mason wasp just has the one. So that's, that's a little bit easier to parse out. But yeah, once you, once you sort of know what to look for and what to eliminate, then it, it becomes quite simple to narrow down in some, in some cases, not all, of course. <laughs> but given what I know about bees, I would say many of the wasps are easier to identify down to species. Um, not all, but I would say more are. Yeah, I I would kind of guess that, not really knowing anything, just making a guess. From my standpoint, they're bigger, so they're easier to see a lot of times than some of the bees. That's right. And as you know, the the males and females of a given species can look very different. One example is the flower-thinned wasps in the genus Mycenum, and the females are just these large, robust, big abdomens, and they have oversized legs and tibia because they're, they're doing all this excavation below ground. And then the males are these long, linear, <laughs> thin, <laughs> very different profile than the females and, and often have different markings or coloration patterns than the female of the same species. So that's, <laughs> that's where it can get a little frustrating with ID sometimes is, is it, first of all, is it a male or female? And then from there, what family does this wasp possibly belong to? So thinking about wasps and stuff, and we've talked about we're seeing them on the flowers anyway, but I know, let's face it, people have that aversion to wasps and a lot of more distrust of wasps usually than bees. And I mean, this is Backyard Ecology Podcast. So we're talking about things that we see a lot of times around our homes, in our gardens, in our built landscapes. And we manage and think about those built landscapes very differently than we would, say, what we would consider a more natural area. So just taking that mistrust and that caution, we'll say caution, not fear, but caution of wasps into account and knowing that, yeah, many people are hesitant to do things that are going to bring wasps into their yards because they don't want to get stung themselves or even more so they don't want to see their kids or their grandkids get stung. And that's completely understandable. But what are some of the things that you would say and tips that you would give for homeowners who are looking to find out if there's a balance there? How could they bring in the wasps, but but do it in a safe manner where they're not having to worry about, oh my gosh, are my kids going to get stung? Because I've heard that even with bees. 
people wanting to plant butterfly gardens, but being afraid of having bees in there because they're afraid their kids are going to get stung or their grandkids are going to get stung. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a complex situation. The easiest way that I've come up with to parse it out is any insect visiting a flower is at the restaurant and the restaurant is not defended or, you know, they don't get aggressive at the restaurant other than with maybe other insects. <laughs> like, hey, get off my flower. <laughs> it's the house that is the place where defense happens. And then if you sort of parse that out even further, similar to bees, most bees have that solitary lifestyle. They they are, have solitary nests, which means a single female is preparing and provisioning a nest. And that's the same with wasps. So we're eliminating, of course, the parasitoids that lay their eggs directly in their prey. So the nest building wasps, most are solitary. And the solitary bees and wasps generally are not are usually not aggressive. So you could have a ground nesting bee digging a nest under your plant by your front sidewalk and never know it was there uh, unless you see her entering or exiting the nest. So they don't generally defend the nest. And as we talked about that nesting phenology, it's a short period of time that they've got to, you know, finish all of their life's work <laughs> to <laughs> build a nest, lay eggs and provide food for the larva, and then they perish. So they don't, really have a lot of reason or time to to sting or and they certainly don't actively try and look for humans to sting. <laughs> and that's the same with solitary wasps. So these ones that I described excavating their burrows in the ground and using sonication, you could literally lie down next to them while they're digging and they couldn't care less. Um, and they don't, you know, they're not aggressive. So we're parsing this out, but the like like bees, the the insects or the wasps that nest socially, so they're founded by one one or a few females, and then it becomes a colony, and you know many wasps living together, cooperatively producing offspring. That is the situation where nest defense occurs. And so in eastern U.S., our social wasps are the ones that use paper as their nest construction material. So that's, that's your first indication. Is it a paper-constructed nest? And ones that get constructed on structures or high up on tree branches away from human traffic, generally there's no negative interaction. There are a few social wasps or several that nest in the ground. And that's generally what people get stung by because we walk through our yard and we don't realize there's a, a thriving nest below ground that is, you know, has been constructed perhaps in a rodent hole and is a, a whole colony below ground. That's, that's the situation people get stung. And so it's really about being wary about your surroundings and, and looking and observing carefully while you're out in your garden for that activity. Similar to a bumblebee colony, the colonies are very small at initiation because just one female. And then they grow in size over the summer as they continue to produce more and more broods. So generally, it's in the heat of the summer that folks are stung by a social wasp because of the size of the colony and the their will to defend their nest against an intruder. Okay. I don't know if that helps at all, but maybe you have some tips to add to my my parsing out story. Yeah, I I, I don't know. It's very people have a sometimes have a fear of all insects, and until we learn about them and their behavior and their 
purpose in life, um, that will certainly help, you know, limit the number of negative interactions we have with wasps and bees. Yeah. So it sounds to me like it's pretty much the same as with bees. I mean, on the flowers, don't try and grab it. Right. Yeah. Don't Don't grab it in your hands. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's always those unfortunate situations where you're you're leaning over looking at a, an insect on a flower they fly up and they get caught in your shirt and they sting you mm-hmm. i mean but they're not intentionally doing so they're in it's usually at the nest that mm-hmm. <laughs> they are not so happy that you've invaded their home right but even then with the solitary wasps just like with the solitary native bees most of the time they're going to fly away it's the risk is not that great. In other words, I mean, yeah, there's always a risk, but it's a, it's pretty it's low. It's a very low yeah. risk. Yeah. You could step on a solitary wasp nest or a solitary bee nest and generally nothing happens. Right. <laughs> if she's inside, she'll say what happened and dig her, or reopen the nest burrow. Or if she's out and she returns and it's covered up, she'll reopen it. I mean, that's literally what happens. So you know, having having someone that's familiar with bees and wasps go out on a walk with them, learn more about them, get comfortable getting up close to them. Those are good places to start for people. Yeah, I usually offer pre and post COVID. I offer pollinator walks where we I have participants capture flower visiting insects in a clear container, mm-hmm. and then we pass that container around and I talk about the insect and. And that children seem to just love that activity. Like they're, they have no fear. It's the parents that are sort of starting to, you know, take three steps back in, in fear of um, actually capturing an insect on a flower. Mm-hmm. So it's just changing the way we think about these beneficial insects. Right. And yeah, that would be amazing to go on a walk with you and have somebody actually showing me what I'm supposed to be looking at on these things because. As a newbie, whether it's native bees or the native wasps and trying to really start to learn them, because I was always more, I like the bigger, more charismatic critters. I like the predatory mammals. I love the birds. I mean, I've studied the bats and stuff like that. That's where my interest and direction always went. And then, of course, the flowers and the plants and stuff, I've learned them as well. But it's only been within the last decade or so that I've really gotten fascinated by the pollinators themselves and started getting into the insects and wanting to learn more and more. So yeah, I still consider myself very, very, very much a newbie when it comes to identifying the bees and the wasps. And sometimes I'm going, okay, what are they talking about? (laughs) Which is why, again, I'm really looking forward to your book so I can go, okay, this is what she's talking about, hopefully. I can start to parse that out and start to look at it some more. Yeah, I've got little, I can show you, I have a printed draft here. I have little arrows pointing to like the specific things you're supposed to be looking for and and what. Oh, I cannot wait to get that. Yeah. (laughs) So even for the beginner, hopefully I can, if you don't know all the anatomical terms, it's at least I'm trying to point to where where you're supposed to be looking (laughs) and what it is you're supposed to look for. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. You just gave me a reason to look forward to summer. I don't really like hot, humid summers, but yeah, now I've got to look forward to summer so I can get out there and find these wasps and start looking at them and figuring out what they are. And you've got you've got the wonderful long growing season where you are. So even in early spring, you'll find some wasps out in late fall. Our our, our season is so much more condensed that 
by by April, I I'm just going stir crazy. I can't wait to start seeing some insects. <laughs> yeah, no. By April, we're well on our way. I mean, I've I've seen butterflies middle of March, early side of March too, and yeah, bees, some of the flower flies. Yeah, we'll start seeing them all pretty soon. It's only a couple more months away for us. Oh, that's nice. That's nice, especially with COVID, right? It's just this yes. wonderful activity that we've already uh, developed and can do without uh, risk of getting COVID. Yes. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us before we wrap up? I don't think so. I look forward to um, hearing about people's interaction, positive interactions and observations of wasps. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and I hope that I've inspired folks to look at them a little bit differently. I'm, I'm sure you have. And yeah, you definitely inspired me to start looking at them even more than I already have started looking at them on there. So this has been fascinating. And I will definitely have a link in the show notes to your website where people can order your book if they want to um, look at your other wonderful books. You've also got some amazing educational resources there. I absolutely love your, this isn't wasp, but on the native bees and how you talk about the stem nesting bees and that visual. Oh, the new graphic. That you've got. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that graphic. I love it because I used to try and explain it. I know. And just verbally, no, no, no. It doesn't work. I know. I know. I, I'd explain it and then, it, yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, we need a graphic. We need. Yes. <laughs> so I still get questions on the graphic, but it's, it's a lot more helpful for folks to visualize, I think. Yeah. Yes, it is. I absolutely love that. So yeah, I highly encourage all of our listeners to go to your website and look through all these wonderful resources you've got and look at your books and everything. So I will have that link on the show notes. I'll also have a link to your Facebook page and you were saying, telling you positive stories. So can I share your email address too with them? Sure. Yep. Okay. Great. Great. So with that, I'll just say thanks again for having us. Like I said, this has been fascinating and I've learned a lot and gotten inspired. So hopefully our listeners have too. Thanks, Shannon. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Same to you. Have a great day. I appreciate Heather taking time to talk with us. I learned so much from her and hope that you did too. As I said during our conversation, I really have become fascinated by all the different wasps that I find on the flowers in my gardens and my fields. My fascination with them actually grew out of my interest in the bees because it was as I was observing the bees that I noticed the wasps. Now I often find myself going out to take pictures of the bees and the butterflies only to get sidetracked by the wasps. I can't wait to get Heather's book and begin learning more about these wasps, including what the real names are. However, I wasn't always fascinated by wasps. Like many people, I grew up with a healthy apprehension of wasps. And of course, I've seen all the memes on social media, vilifying wasps and calling them names that I'm not going to repeat on this podcast. But as Heather pointed out, and I've learned through my own personal experiences, those fears and concerns are for the most part unfounded and misplaced. Wasps generally aren't going to bother you, especially when they are on the flowers, and they definitely aren't the evil villains they are often portrayed as. Instead, they are a vital part of the ecosystem and help control many different insect and arachnid populations. I'm glad there are people like Heather out there who are helping to dispel these myths and misrepresentations about wasps and other less popular animals. Before I wrap this up, I want to let you know that the Backyard Ecology website has a shop where I sell my book and nature-related note cards. If you're interested, please check it out at 
www.backyardecology.net slash shop. Proceeds from the Backyard Ecology shop help support the Backyard Ecology podcast and blog. And until next week, I encourage you to take some time to enjoy the nature in your own yards and community. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.